what's Jesus do in John chapter 13? He washes his disciples' feet. What did he just do in chapter 12? He came riding in on the triumphal entry, right? Thousands and thousands of people are telling you, you're number one, you're number one, you're number one. Everybody loves you. Everybody thinks you're amazing. And then he goes and he finds the wash bucket and the basin off the side and he finds the worst servant's job that he can do and he washes his disciples' stinky feet. And it puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? Because is Jesus number one? Absolutely. There's nothing more powerful on this that's ever walked this earth than Jesus Christ. But is he also set the example for what it means to love your neighbor as yourself? Today is. John chapter 13 is all about that. So as I get mail here at the church, how many, how many letters do you think I get for a servant's conference? None. None, yeah. And it's like, hey, come learn how to wash toilets. No, never, I, I never get those. How many, how many do you think I get for a leadership conference? I get several, right? Everybody wants to learn how to be a leader, but nobody wants to learn how to serve. And in, in Christianity today, that, that is part of our problem. We all want to be out front. We all want to be out doing the front man work sometimes. Maybe that's my attitude. Uh, but we don't want to put in the hard work in the trenches, right? And it takes both. We see that in spiritual gifts. God gives speaking gifts, and God gives serving gifts. Um, that's how Peter breaks them down into those two categories. I think that's actually not a half-bad way to look at them sometimes. Before Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, how did he train them? He trains them. He does. What's it say? What's the, the indicator of his training? Well, it's in John chapter 3, verse 22. It says, Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem. They went into the Judean countryside, where Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. He says, This is how you do it. I'm going to show you. Now you go and do it. And it wouldn't surprise me if about the only people that Jesus baptized were the twelve. Because they didn't want, I'm, I'm, maybe he had more than that, but it wouldn't surprise me if all we get to heaven and the, we find out the only people that Jesus baptized, it was either no one or the twelve because he was showing them, he was training them, this is how we do it. And he never wanted them to make Jesus an idol of himself or the baptism an idol of itself. Because it's an outward expression of an inward change, right? That's what we believe in here at White Rose. It's also what Peter says it was. If you look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, you'll see that. And it goes on into chapter 4, actually, too. It's the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. So those are good ones to read. He spent some time with them. And you can tell I'm talking about this because I've spent some time with Bill Allison this week and reading his book, um, Disciple Making His Relationships. That word, spent some time with him, the Greek word is called diatribo or diatribo. 
It means to wear into, like you're rubbing leather glove. Like when you're wearing leather gloves and you're baling hay and you rub those twine across your, your knuckles until they wear through. Or you're gardening with a pair of gloves and you're pulling weeds uh, that they leave the holes. They become holy. They kind of, that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's wearing into them so that they understand what his lifestyle is. Paul understood that concept and he urges the Corinthians to do the same thing. He says, I'm going to wear into you as you wear into others, in a sense, that concept of Jesus-like disciple-making. And so as we go along, Jesus was imprinting himself on the 12, his way of life. The training started when they woke up, and it didn't end until they went to bed. And if you're going to make disciples of Jesus, we have to spend time with the people you want to disciple. So the question we should be asking as a Christian who is pursuing the Lord is, what does a first century Jesus-like disciple-making look like in the 21st century? What does the first century Jesus-like disciple-making look like in the 21st century? This is a question that we should be asking all the time as disciple-makers, as elders of the church and as a pastor. You can, I ask this question a lot. What does it look like to be, act, and do life like Jesus does today? How can I translate that to common language? Okay? This is where we're going today. This is the question we should be on our mind constantly as we follow Christ. And we will find the beginning of the answer in John chapter 13. Not that Jesus hasn't done it all the way up to this point, but Jesus really... He's going to be glorified, right? He knows he's going to the Father. And what's he do? He teaches his disciples how to be servants. Okay? We're going to find this in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. This is the New Living Translation. It's the red Bibles in front of you if you're um, curious there. Uh, but the black ones in front of you are also very close as well. They're the NIV. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over, over everything, and that he had come from the from God and we returned to God. So he got up from the table, he took off his robe, he wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. Disciple making looks like it, a disciple maker practices servant style leadership. Jesus was a disciple maker. He is going to model for his disciples what they are to do. Do you notice all the steps that John wrote out? John wrote this late in his life, and he remembered these step by step. Jesus got up, he took off his outer robe, he put a towel around his waist, 
He filled the water basin, and then he comes over to wash the feet. Can you see how that comes into play of the comfort level? I remember one time Pastor Dave washed Jim Creed's feet in front of the congregation. It was uncomfortable for Dave, it was uncomfortable for Jim, but it was uncomfortable for me as a congregant. So we just don't see that today. Is that wrong? I think so. I think that discomfort shows that it's not my tendency to want to serve. And I learned the lesson that day. I'm not going to go wash somebody's feet today, though. Sorry. You're like, oh, I thought we had a spa day today at church. Not the case. Do we have people who serve well at White Rose? We do. We do. We have a lot of good servants here. I don't think you have a good church without good servants. Can you make serving your God an idol, in a sense? Absolutely. That would be called doing life for God. Lord, look what I did for you. Look how I did this. Look at how many people were fed for you. Does Jesus want that? He wants all those things to happen but he wants to do it with you. He wants to come alongside and that relationship done with you. Because if we do everything for God, we made an idol of that service. Right? I was a camp counselor for you, God. Don't you remember? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Ah, I missed the mark, right? How far does Satan have to get you off the target? Just a couple of degrees, right? The farther back we stand from the target, the more of an expert we think we are, that few degrees gets wider and wider and wider until we miss the target altogether. So as a Christ follower, I can tell you, the closer you stand to the target, the better chance you have of hitting the bullseye. So we need to do life with Jesus. We need to do it with him next to us. We need to have that expectation that he is going to be a part of our daily lives. When we wake up in the morning, we invite him to do life with us. We ask for his protection. We ask for his direction. Right? This is what love looks like. This servant-style leadership, this getting down on your knees, getting down and serving is what love looks like. Looks like, and this is how love is put on display. This is our example of a leadership in church by serving one another. In John chapter 13, we see in verse 3, we see three things that indicate this. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. It states that. John writes this. He Obviously, Jesus had portrayed this and told this to his disciples. He knew it. John knew it as one of his disciples. Jesus had the authority of God the Father, and he has a choice. He could wipe out and start over, right? He could just wipe out all sin, which would wipe out all humanity, and he could start over. Or he could choose to redeem the world of sin and darkness and death. Think about this from God's point of view. The problem of sin has been around for thousands of years. If he was going to eradicate 
humanity, he would have started with Adam and Eve and started over, right? But he knows, man, since he's created us, he also wants to have a relationship with us. And he chooses to come alongside us and be a blessing. Jesus had the power to destroy, yet he chose to redeem. He had the power to rule, but he chose to serve. That is a mighty God. Amen? Amen. Thanks. Told you I'm going to be a rascal this morning. And then the second thing was he came from God. He came from God. What does that mean? Jesus was perfect. If he came from God, he would be able to stand in front of God as holy and pleasing to the Lord. In a sense, God probably could have started over with Jesus, but he chose to redeem us. Number three, he would return to God. He had the confidence that he would defeat sin and death. John records this in this place to show the confidence that Christ had in his authority over sin and death. Right? Did not God create death as a consequence of sin? Isn't death a created thing? Yes, it is. And so God knows how to control death. He knows how to defeat death. He knows how to, in a sense, purify death with his blood of his son. And so he has the confidence that he would defeat sin and death and redeem all mankind. The result, we now can stand in the presence of a holy God because of the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus has set us free. This is why we choose to follow him. The king above all kings came down to serve you and I. Isn't that pretty amazing? The king of all kings came down to serve you and I. He wants to have a relationship with you and I. So if we were to bring this home, where can we serve our community that will see the love of Christ in its full potential? Where can we see? Maybe even another question is, where can we refine so we can see that better as well, right? Are you convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? Does not God's word say that? In Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Are we living like we believe that? And if we are, then we have a responsibility to share this with our neighbors. The joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord gives us strength. When there's more boxes than people to carry, the Lord gives us strength, right? When there's more bales than we know what to do with, the Lord gives us strength. When the, the baby won't stop crying and you're just like, blessings to you, young lad. The Lord gives us strength, right? When we're looking for that significant other, maybe, and we're not sure if that's ever going to come, the Lord gives us strength. When we're waiting for the Lord to give us new life 
maybe a, a child, the Lord gives us strength. He is our strength. He is our blessing. So are you convinced of that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God? And when was the last time you turned the conversation to Jesus? You're talking with a coworker, and you intersect Jesus into your conversation. You know, I really find peace in this, in this crazy world through my Lord and Savior Jesus. And they may go, oh, I didn't know you go to church. The conversation continues down the line. That's an open invitation right there, by the way. They ever say that? Yeah, why don't you come check it out? If they're like, oh, that's nice. Oh, you're crazy Jesoid. You might just want to pray for that person and not pursue that conversation much farther, right? But they know where you stand at that point, right? They know where you're at. Guess what? They will test you now to see how, if this is the real deal. They will test you. Hey, I'm going to go back out and smoke. You want to get, go with me? I am going to go do this. Hey, I do this. Hey, but also, if you live up under those expectations, who do they come and talk to when they got a problem, right? Who do they come and say, hey, I, I'm really struggling with this. I need help in this, with this and this. They come to the people that's got a foundation under them, don't they? Amen? Jesus Christ is our foundation. He is our joy. He is our strength. He is the peace that passes understanding. And when you can go under trials with him and endure trials with him, you will have that peace. It doesn't make it any easier, but man, it, it, it makes it um, bearable. It definitely does make it bearable. So think about every encounter that you've seen with somebody today. Think about any encounter that you've seen in the Bible, in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, like Naaman, that we read about in the call to worship this morning. Can those people, can they stay silent? Do they stay silent? Even when Jesus says, don't tell anybody that I healed you, what do they nine times out of the ten go and do? They go and tell. That's right. They're like, you're never going to guess what Jesus of Nazareth just did to me. Wait a minute. Aren't you the guy that was a crippled beggar that I just saw a few minutes ago? And you've been there every year that I've been coming for the last 13 years? That's me. That's me. And he is in the temple preaching right now. You got to see him. This is, this is the Messiah. When Jesus does life change in your heart, you can't help but change. You can't help but tell. It overflows. When you first became a Christian, I, I say there's a six, six months grace period there where God is with you. He has sustained you. And in about six months, he pulls away to let your faith legs grow, to move you from milk and honey to a little bit more solid food. Maybe the oatmeal of faith, right? And you start to see some trials come in your life. You start to see some influences come in your life that, that those were pre-Jesus. What's Jesus going to think of me now that I, I'm, I'm choosing to kind of go back in some of those old ways? And, and is Jesus really with me? And those doubts start to come. 
But faith overcomes those doubts, doesn't it? And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, he will be faithful and just to forgive us of that unrighteousness, won't he? He'll forgive us of our sins. See how I meshed those two verses together a little bit there? So, we have a responsibility to tell others about Jesus Christ. And we need to remember what God's done for us so we have our testimony there and ready. As we talked about last week, Jesus shared his 15-second testimony. We need to have our 15-second testimony ready. Um, Before Jesus, I was very selfish. I was always looking out after me, but then Jesus happened, and now I look after others, and I pursue his righteousness instead of my self-righteousness. Do you have a story like that? That's my 15-second testimony, right? And they could either say, yeah, I do. I was saved when I was this, this, this. Well, praise God. Hey, maybe we can um, talk about the Bible a little bit more at work. No, I don't. Would you like to know how God did that for me? Yes, I would. That's where you better start learning um, either bridge diagram, the, the three circles is a good one. There's other ones that go along there. The uh, God-shaped hole in your heart. Those are all tools that we can use to share. And if they're like, no, I'm, I don't really want to, do we be like write them off, never talk to them again? No, we pray for them, right? Then we intersect Jesus into the conversation down the road again. Because they'll be watching that week, won't they? They'll be watching. And if we remember these things, we remember this responsibility, then we need to ask, what does a first century Jesus-like disciple making look like in the 21st century? Let's continue on. John chapter 13, verse 6 through 11. It says, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Then Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and heads as as well. Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over doesn't need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And your disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. A disciple of Christ accepts what is offered. Disciple maker of Christ accepts what is offered. I believe that Peter refuses at first due to shame, right? He doesn't want to allow Jesus to wash his feet because either it's shame of his pride of what he has done. Possibly, a lot of people speculate that it was Peter's responsibility to do the feet washing, that he was in the place that he was supposed to come and wash the disciples' feet, and he didn't want to do it, and so he didn't do it. So Jesus came to the place where it needed to be done, And he got up and did it himself, setting the example of how to serve. 
So whether it's one or the other, it doesn't really matter. Peter couldn't believe that Jesus would lower himself to a servant. He was astonished what Jesus was doing at this time. Not any servant, but the lowest servant in the household often was the foot washer. Jesus was showing his disciples why he came to this earth. Through his actions, Jesus came to serve humanity in his death. Can we get much lower of a death than Jesus's? He was accused of being a criminal. He wasn't a criminal. He accepted the role and died a criminal's death. We see Jesus wants to identify as a follower of of Christ, but he doesn't want it at the cost that Jesus is offering it. Peter wants the glory, he wants the power, he wants the position, he wants it now, and that's not even in the ballpark of what Jesus wants to do, right? Jesus isn't there to establish the final kingdom now. He's there to establish the age of grace. So when Jesus dies on the cross and rises again, he opens the age of grace that we are supposed to tell our neighbors about Jesus Christ and how he's saving us from the power of sin and death. Right? We have a responsibility as a Christ follower. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. It says, Therefore go and make disciples. Do we go across seas to make disciples? Yeah, we can. But we're supposed to go where we are. If we go across the seas, we should make disciples there. If we go across the street, we should make disciples there too. If we go out into our car and we have our family in our van, we better make disciples there. Who better to disciple your children than you as parents, as me, as parents? And if you want to set the example, dare I say, I'm going to say it. You know I'm going to say it. Family devos. Family devotions, they're old school, but they work great. And if you have an opportunity to share with your family, I recommend that you do that. To share with one another what's going on in your life and how can we find a scripture that will to do it. And we also have some, um, fo- Focus on the Family actually has some really good family devotional books that, that are still very good today. Um, isn't that the one that we had? Yeah, it's, we got it from Focus on the Family. So um, we have that as well. Do we know that Peter's saved? I think at this point we can say, yes, Peter is saved. Where, where am I getting that from? You look at Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus reveals himself by the load of fish that he has hauled in to the boat. And Peter recognized Jesus is as holy, and he is not. And he says, O Lord, please leave me, for I'm such a sinful man. And Jesus redeems him and says, Now on, you are going to make be fishers of men, not of fish. I think that's the point of salvation for, for Peter. So Peter has had his spiritual bath, but now he needs his feet washed. 
Have you had your spiritual bath? Have you asked Jesus to come and live in your life? Have you surrendered to him? Have you started that story with him, that relationship? I see some heads nodding yes. Great. That means I can invite you to take communion with us this morning. We'll talk about it afterwards, okay? If you've asked Jesus to come into your life, then you can take part in communion this morning, right? This is hard on us too. I think we come to a place where Peter is because we come with expectation of what church and Jesus should be, especially as young believers. The church should act like this. Jesus should act like this. Sometimes our expectations are even correct, especially when it comes to the church. Because we're broken vessels, aren't we? And we don't always fill up with the Holy Spirit every morning. And so as the church, we can mess up. And sometimes we can mess up big. And we have a choice As another believer, we can come to them in love and offer correction. We can come to them in love and set the correct example. We can come to them in love and love them like we expect Christ to love us. All those things would be correct. Or we could come in hate and in anger and lash out at them and say, Church isn't supposed to act like this, and we're not supposed to do this. That's ridiculous. I can't believe you even call yourself a Christian for doing those things. Can you see the difference between the two? The first one comes alongside and is encouraging. The second one comes alongside and motivates through guilt. Is guilt a motivator? Yeah, it is. It's probably the worst motivator that you can use as a Christian, especially when we have so many other tools in our toolbox. Guilt is what the world says is great motivation. Have you ever had a high school coach that motivated you with guilt? Come on, you slobs. You got to be able to run up and down that court back and forth. You can't do this. You're nothing. Did you see the score last week? We were beaten by 20 points. 20 points. This is not acceptable. Well, no kidding, coach. We didn't think it was acceptable either, right? Do you know all those facts? Absolutely, you know those facts. But Jesus Christ wants to motivate us through encouragement. I'm going to invite you to not run out of gas at the end of the game so we're ready to go and we don't get blown out by 10 in the last five minutes of the game. I'm going to invite you to run with me now so that that won't ever happen again. Can you see how those are two, the exact same thing? But the second one I actually want to do, and I have the reason why we're doing it. As a player, it makes a lot of sense. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is coaching his players. He's coaching Peter specifically that you don't need a bath all over. You just need to wash your feet. That's what communion is about, people. When we come to the Lord in communion, it is a washing of the feet. It is an opportunity to ask for forgiveness. That's what I usually do during the bread, bread, the bread, 
That's, I don't know what language that was. Uh, during the bread, I ask for forgiveness. I ask the Lord to cleanse my life. I evaluate myself. And then during the cup, I give God praise for what he has done for me. He has saved me from sin and death. Isn't that a joy? Isn't that amazing what he has done? We need to tell that. We need to share that. We need to, that needs to be a daily process. So we read the Gospels to get ourselves in line with Christ, and Peter, he's starting to understand in about four days. He's going to have a better picture, isn't he, of what Jesus plans to do. So why is Jesus washing their feet? What are they about to do? They're about to perform a Seder meal. What do we get out of the Seder meal? We get communion. The last step of communion, or the last step of the Seder meal is the steps of communion. And God says to do this in remembrance of me. Jesus specifically says that, right? That's why we do communion. Jesus said to do it. Okay, we'll do it. Right? We were at, I was asked this morning, why are, why are we doing communion again? This is why, because Jesus said so. All right, that's a good answer. Sometimes we just don't need to, to question. Sometimes we do. There's also, it's a reminder. Okay, so because we're reminded of the sacrifice of Christ, it's also a reminder of the covenant that we have with God through Christ. We who profess Christ have already washed the bowl. Now we just need to rinse it out so it's ready to use again, right? So we're in communion with God. A covenant is made between a higher party and a lower party. We are the lower party. He sets the covenant. He sets the rules. He says to do this in remembrance of the covenant that we've set. We listen and obey. Right? Does that make sense? Did you guys know that about a covenant? A covenant is a series of promises between a higher party and a lesser party. Uh, it would be like a, a treaty signed by the United States and another country that's uh, maybe less than us in a sense because we have the authority. We have the military power in a sense and then they need that military power, so they're going to listen to our rules. That's just an illustration as, as well. So we need to be ready so we can be ready to use again, right? So what does a first century Jesus-like disciple maker look like in the 21st century? We're prepared and we're ready. Let's finish off this passage this morning that we're going to go through, verses 12 through 17 of John 13. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, and he sat down, and he asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because, that, that, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. 
Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. A disciple maker has the same attitude as Christ. And anytime we're talking about attitude, where do we go? We go to Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Jesus set for them an, an example of how he wanted his disciples to act. He wanted them to serve first. He wanted their attitude to be one of service. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be a servant? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, gives one of the best examples of how Jesus, and I, I would say this is probably a hymn that they sang back in the early church, because if you look at it, it's in a poetic form. It says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So he became from immortal, he became mortal. From mortal, he became the lowest servant. As a lowest servant, he was accused of being a criminal and died a criminal's death. You can't get any lower than that for an innocent man that didn't deserve any of that, can you? Jesus gave up his divine privileges by becoming human. He became the lowest human slave. Why? Because he was in obedience to God. God had a plan from the very beginning to redeem Adam and Eve and the rest of us from our sin and from death. And it came when the ultimate sacrifice died on the cross, Jesus Christ. He died as a criminal to pay for the sin of the world. He was perfection. He was the only one who could afford the debt that we acquired. Right? Did Jesus acquire any of that debt when it came to death? Not one cent. He's continuing to pay for our debt even today, isn't he? Isn't that amazing? That, that, I can't even grasp that concept. The cross meant to kill was my victory. My victory in Jesus. Praise God. So what does God do about that? Oh, good job, Jesus. Better luck next time. Right? No, no. We see it here in Philippians. We see it a little bit in John, but we see it immensely in Revelation. Right? It says in verse 9, it says, Therefore, and if you see a therefore, you've got to look and see what it's there for. So we looked at the previous passage already. This is the conclusion. It says, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus is Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. Through Jesus, God opened the door for all to be saved. It all started with Christ's attitude. Didn't it? It all started with his mentality of how he was going to go into the game, how he was going to approach the people, and he always stayed under God's authority. If you ever read through the Gospel of John from start to finish, you will see that Jesus always submits to God the Father. Another thing, he always never is rushed for time. He said, it's not my time, it's not my time. Whose time table does he go by? He goes by God the Father's timetable. What's he say in this passage? My time has arrived. My time is here. He's going to say that in John 13. What was his time to do? His time was to be the ultimate sacrifice, to pour out his blood for us. Because without blood, without a sacrifice, there's no remission of sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him I own. He washed and made it white as snow. Praise God for that. So what does a first century Jesus-like disciple maker look like in the 21st century? As much like Jesus as we possibly can, right? How do we find out what that looks like? We study God's word and we pray and we go from there. We're going to transition to communion now as I pray to, to end. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together. Lord, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you that you have watched over us. Lord, we thank you that you have watched us white as snow. Lord, we are sinners in need of your grace even now. Lord, as we come before you in communion, allow us to humble ourselves, humble our hearts, that we would come before you and um, make it right with you by surrendering to your grace and accepting the free gift of salvation. Guide and direct us closer to you, Lord. Please protect us as we go. Amen. Elders, why don't you come on up?